Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. From the Milton Metz studio in the Radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU, WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. A new report from the UN-backed organization that analyzes biodiversity says pollution and climate change are causing severe damage to the world's coral reefs. We're going to talk about that today with two panelists here in our studio. Well, one is in our studio and one is joining us by phone. Uh, in the studio with us, Casey Valley, who's an IU student and a dive technician at Southern Indiana Scuba in Bloomington. And joining us by phone is Zach Rago, who's an educator, uh, a reef expert, and documentary subject of Chasing Coral. Uh, a documentary that's on Netflix. He's in Colorado, between Denver and Boulder right now. You can follow us on the program by giving us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, Zach and Casey, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, thank, thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for being here with us. Um, I want to. I want to turn to Zach first and just sort of set the stage for us. Talk about. Um, just give us a definition for for coral and you know why should we be talking about this subject today? Yeah. So the, the foundation of kind of what a coral is, is is pretty fascinating. I think for most people is you know they're really an animal that incorporates a plant into their tissue and that plant allows them to build a rock. So. To a certain extent, you've got a plant, animal, and rock all kind of encompassing one organism. Um, but they're extremely simple. Um, you know, physiologically, they're not too complex, yet they have this amazing relationship between the animal and the plant that, that can be quite complicated. And um, it's that relationship and the breakdown of that relationship, which is why we need people to kind of realize what's happening to coral reef and, and wake up to, to the problems that are happening under our ocean. Um, over the past five years or so, um, ocean sea level temperatures have um, risen quite dramatically, particularly in 2016 when we were in the midst of a really big El Nino year. Um, that rise in sea temperature um, creates a, a pretty bad situation for corals, um, and particularly for those plants that live inside of them. And they actually get rid of those plants, and um, we, we call that a bleaching event. The corals essentially turn white. And now they're um, they're starving to death, more or less. Um, and we've seen a lot of really high mortality rates from events like this um, all over the planet over the past five years. So it's something that we we're really trying to you know make mainstream and get people aware that these events are going on, and hopefully inspire some action to um, you know do better as society, and, and hopefully um, use them as a platform to to engage some social change when it comes to you know protecting the environment. So I want to ask Casey, uh, how, you're sitting here in the middle of Indiana. How did you get interested in this topic, and how did you decide that you wanted to start diving? I've always loved the water. I grew up in New York, and when I moved here, when I was about 10 years old, I was like, oh, no, I'm now in the land of the corn. What am I going to do? But there's a diving program here at our university, and then I just continued to dive um, with them and then also with the uh, scuba shop that's just right down the road from the university, mm -hmm. Southern Indiana Scuba. And that showed me that anybody here, landlocked or not, um, we have connections out on the coast, like throughout the U.S. and the Midwest even, there are places to dive. You can get involved in the sport. You can see it. You can use it for science. You can go places with trips that we lead. You can go on scientific research expeditions. Anybody can go and see what's happening. Now, you told me that you were in Cozumel over spring break. Yeah. So what did you, what did you see there? I actually saw that the coral there is pretty healthy um, where we were, which was the dive resort Fiesta or dive house dive resort um, at the resort Fiesta Americana, um, which is on like the north side of the island. 
Um, but it was all very healthy. There was minimal bleaching, actually, and, like, some white band disease present, but just, like, minimal compared to, like, the Keys and stuff. But I think it's more of, like, popular tourist destinations that you can see it in more than others because there are more effects um, in addition to the CO2 emissions that are more direct on the reefs that may contribute to disease. Mm-hmm. And, and Zach, I think obviously this is something a lot of folks will never see. They're never going to go diving. So can you just talk a little bit about what that environment looks like? I mean, when you have coral, then you have fish. And just if you can sort of paint the picture for us. Yeah, I think that, that I mean, that question itself, I think, ultimately what made me fall in love with the ocean. Um, you know, this is an environment that's so elaborately built. Um, you know, its foundation, the role of the coral is kind of this competition for space, so to speak. So they're constantly growing upwards and outwards, and, and each coral has its own, you know, kind of morphology or, or structure, so to speak. So you get huge branching corals, um, and then other times you get big columns and, and big mound, almost boulder-like structures. And all of this creates this, um, you know, three-dimensional infrastructure for this incredible diversity of other life, um, all the way from the big fish like sharks and, and tuna and, and, and anything like that, all the way down to the smallest little shrimps and crabs that you could ever imagine. But um, it really is just this beautiful landscape that's all built by these very simple creatures. Um, and, and it also helps that you know, more often than not, they are um, extremely colorful and, and aesthetically just beautiful. Um, so it's a really special place to be. It, um, it feels very alien to, to be underwater and, and be exploring these types of ecosystems. Uh, they really are pretty remarkable places. And, um, you know, even though most people won't have that opportunity, I think... Uh, you know, given the right way, whether it be the film or, or whether it be um, even doing virtual reality and virtual dives with people, um, there's still a way to, to share that experience and share this inherent beauty that this ecosystem has. Um, I think that's really important. So can you kind of compare that picture you just presented to then what it looks like after there has been bleaching and if that leads to the death of a coral reef? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what's so interesting is, you know, during that process of bleaching, the reefs can actually be quite beautiful as well. Um, you know, you get these bright whites, and some species of corals even do what's called fluorescing, where they'll produce these pigments that are um, that are otherworldly in nature. Um, the colors are just something that you can barely describe. Um, however, even if, as that being so beautiful, um, we kind of think of that as kind of them, uh, you know, screaming out, please notice me, so to speak, um, before they ultimately die. And once they die... Um, then that ecosystem takes a full 180. Um, everything really becomes, um, you know, covered in algae, kind of call that a phase shift, so to speak. Um, and you get a pretty mucky and dirty system with um, really just kind of a landscape of rubble and, and dead coral skeletons um, covered in nasty, filamentous algae. Um, one of the fascinating changes that happens during that is a healthy no- coral reef can be quite noisy. There's a lot of background noise and clicking and snapping. Uh, but after a bleaching event, it can actually be quite silent as all of those organisms either move on to another reef or die with the coral. So um, there, there's some really drastic changes that can happen really quite quickly as these thermal events begin to take hold on, on coral reefs, um, as well as other anthropogenic stressors. We want to talk, uh, we're talking about coral reefs today, and we're going to learn a lot here uh, on this program today. If you have questions, or if you want to tell us about your dive, or if you want to talk about this issue with us, we really encourage you to give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Casey, I want to give you the same opportunity to to describe, you know, what it's like, um, and, and maybe go back to your first, you know, your first dive when you first saw a coral reef. Yeah, um, there's just all sorts of textures that you never knew existed. When you get down there, you can actually see all these new things, and like you see the texture of a brain or something in anatomy class, but underwater, it's a whole different kind of brain, like the coral there. Um, the fish and stuff, you actually get to swim with them and see them, and they're alive around you. They're not caught 
dead on your line. Um, you can see their scales and their colors. And some of them, like, they have this, like, shimmery blue kind of color that just goes and they go back and forth in front of you. And it's just colors you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Thanks for drawing us those pictures, yeah. uh, both of you. So. I know that um, people who dive and people who even snorkel around reefs will talk about the different fish that they see and the different organisms, the different, uh, you know, I guess examples of, of life that they see, you know, besides the coral. Can you talk about that a little bit, Casey, first? Besides the coral. Yeah, um, I mean, just fish that might f- swim around yeah, and things like everything that. Everything down there. Occasionally you see something big and it might come up in the distance and everything down there is so aware like squids and the bigger things like spotted eagle rays and sharks they see you and they're kind of they might be afraid of your bubbles they might be entertained by your bubbles like seals Um, and they'll come up and they'll play they'll look and you can see them looking and analyzing like what are you Um, when you get closer there are fish that might attack you, defend you, like their eggs, and they're just so little, like the size of your palm, like a sergeant major just coming up and you're near its nest, so it'll peck at you. And you're like, this little thing, <laughs> like what's it gonna do? But they care and they're aware and intelligent. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Zach, same question for you. I mean, just again, we're just continuing with this description on radio, our, our word description. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I, I think what she just said is, is one of the coolest things, especially when we talk about fish, is that um, more frequently than not, I think most, um, you know, kind of just your, your average person um, thinks of fish as, you know, maybe not the most intelligent or um, really one of those species that's, um, you know, food on the, on the plate. Um, but I think what's so fascinating about going scuba diving is, you end up down there, and you're immediately a naturalist. I mean, you're there to, to see nature and, and see fish and, and see the life that exists in this ecosystem. And I think you realize really quickly and really early on into your scuba diving career that, like, fish have these incredible personalities. Um, and, and if you dive in the same locations over and over again over periods of time, you'll you'll run into the same fish over and over again and and you can differentiate individuals simply because um you know like she said maybe that one is the one that attacks you a little bit um and is super aggressive and then you have the more timid fish and um you can actually build those kind of relationships quote unquote um you know with the environment that you're in and and actually begin to you know develop this really close close-knit connection with um with what's down there and begin to see that all of these things, um, you know, first of all, play a role, but they are incredibly smart. Um, and they all do have real and, and um, you know, tangible personalities. And, and I think that's just so funny because it's um, not necessarily what you think of when you, uh, when you imagine a fish or imagine scuba diving. But um, I feel like just every portion of it, um, it, it just has this little bit of magic that you wouldn't know unless you got down there and did it. So I was reading this uh, article that was talking about – it was a Q&A with you this morning, Zach, and um, you were referred to both as a, a coral geek and a coral nerd. I mean, you wear those yeah. You wear those proudly, right? Absolutely. I'm pretty sure that I deemed it myself oh. that. <laughs> uh, but I was um, – at the time, I don't know how serious I was in them using it, but um, yeah, it stuck and um, – yeah, I think nerdery is good. Um, all, all the, I've been nerding out on nature since I was very young, and uh, you know, quite frankly, I'm pretty proud that I'm still in a position where I'm able to, um, you know, have conversations and nerd out on the things I'm interested in. We're happy um, to. We're happy about it too. I'm pretty happy. <laughs> can you can you talk about just how many coral reefs are damaged and or under threat, and how many are even damaged beyond repair? Zach, just from, I mean, yeah, your, your work on the documentary and just your research in general. Yeah, so those are some big numbers that we might not necessarily have after um, 2016 and 2017. We're, we're definitely still going to be in that assessment stage for the, the next year or two um, to get a real number of, um, you know, what that exact damage was globally. Um, I can certainly speak to the Great Barrier Reef where I do the majority of my work, um, in, in 2016 and 2017, we lost about 50% of the corals um, that we live in that ecosystem, which which seems like a very daunting number, and it is. But 
um, there are still some really miraculous places. I think what what is hard to talk about when it comes to coral reef ecology is, um, you know, really nothing is black and white. Everything does fall in that kind of gray area or spectrumental area. Um, where you'd be hard-pressed to say that there isn't a reef in the world that hasn't seen some form of stressors. Um, whether or not that means they're devastated, that that's probably up to question, up to individual reefs. Um, we've certainly seen some really large devastation worldwide um, over the past few years. The Caribbean um, largely kind of dodged a bullet, in my opinion. Um, you know, they weren't seeing really devastating bleaching. Um, they, they do have their own problems, particularly from the anthropogenic impact side of things like nutrient runoff. Um, but overall, uh, there, there's plenty to fight for. You know, even if, let's say that, um, I'm going to throw out an estimate of maybe we lost 40% of all corals globally in the past five years. Um, while that number is scary, I, I do think that there's a reason to be optimistic, and their physiology and their biology actually, you know, allows them to be remarkably efficient at, at coming back and, and rejuvenating themselves. Um, and I think that's really amazing. So it's the corals themselves that give me hope. Uh, but it really comes down to us as a society, um, you know, kind of holding our end of the bargain in order for any of the science or, or anything like that to make a big splash, so to speak. If a coral does become stressed or, or even part of the reef like you were talking about, can it rebound from that? Or even after there's been bleaching, can it rebound from that? Yeah, so a coral that's lost its symbiont or its, uh, its algal partner, um, if the water temperatures decrease uh, quickly enough, they can actually rejuvenate those algae within their own tissue and they can continue to live. Um, we, we do see that happen. Um, depending on where you are, it can be um, kind of more frequent than, than others, um, just kind of depending on the temperature of the ocean, the, where, where that system may be located. Um, what's really cool about them, so corals reproduce in this amazing way. Um, they, they do what's called a, a mass spawning event. So on the same night of the same full moon, every coral on the Great Barrier Reef, for instance, we throw its eggs and its sperm into the water column. Um, those now baby little corals are just free-floating in the ocean. They can float anywhere in the world um, and land and create a new coral and create a new coral reef. Um, that, that's a pretty amazing evolutionary feat and is also an amazing way for them to continue to be able to rejuvenate themselves even under a period of time where so much stress is happening. Um, so even on, I've been to some of the most devastated reefs in the northern Great Barrier Reef in the past six months, and you still see little baby coral recruits. Um, they're really good at coming back, and they're really good at, um, you know, creating the system that can kind of replenish themselves on this amazingly fast um, basis. Um, but if we keep throwing stressors at those babies, um, there's only so much we can do. But they, they certainly can survive. Uh, and they really are good at it. And, and that's what keeps me so optimistic when it comes to coral reefs. Even if we lose 90% of them in the next 50 years, that 10% is fully capable of rejuvenating the world's coral reef. So I, I need to know more about this. I'm fascinated by this. So, they, <laughs> so these little baby um, corals, do, do they... I mean, is there a percentage to just stay around where they where they are, and then and then others that sort of venture off? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, honestly, the majority of them on it would become fish food, most likely. Um, it's kind of like uh, sea turtles. You're only mm -hmm. going to get X percentage of those babies out into the system. But because we're talking about something like the Great Barrier Reef, um, the size of Italy, where all of the corals, or at least most of them, are all doing this on the same evening, um, that's a great deal of gametes and, and great deal of genetic material that's now basically floating in that water column. Um, different locations are going to be more effective at replenishing others based on where they sit within the ocean, um, oceanographical currents. Um, so places like Indonesia that are so diverse and have these ripping currents between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific they're really good at um, providing corals or baby corals to other parts of the world. Um, so in a scenario where the Great Barrier Reef died fully, for instance, um, it would be really feasible for places like Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands in Indonesia 
to replenish those areas of the world simply by the currents carrying those babies down towards northern Australia. Um, there's still a lot, of, there's a lot of work that probably needs to be done in understanding, you know, the nitty gritty of the hydrodynamics of those currents and and part of what Fifty Reefs is doing, which um, is Richard from the film, um, his new project is basically, you know, accepting the fact that we're going to lose 90% of coral reefs in the next 50 years. Now let's identify 50 locations around the world that fit kind of two factors. The first being, historically, they don't necessarily bleach. Um, and the second being that they're positioned within currents um, that, that make them really good candidates to act as a seed bank, so to speak, um, for reefs that might not have been so lucky. Um, so it's a really cool thought and idea that we're kind of just at the um, at the forefront of at the moment. But um, yeah, they're, they're really cool. <laughs> just to, I want to check my hearing because I, I I heard something that you said and I just want you to repeat it. So you, did you say the Great Barrier Reef is the size of Italy? Yep, the Great Barrier Reef um, essentially runs the entire. It's the same size as the east coast of the United States. It's made up of about four thousand individual reefs, um, but it is. Spatial-wise, about the size of Italy, it makes it the uh, the largest living structure ever created on the planet. All right. We're going to take a, sh- a short break in a minute, but I would recommend to listeners who are uh, fascinated with the topic like we are that uh, if you're close to a computer, you might go look at the, at the trailer for the documentary Chasing Coral. It's only about a minute and a half, two minutes long. It'll give you a really good sense for – uh, for Zach and and that uh, documentary project, and for Casey and what she why she likes to dive so much, um, but you could just find Chasing Coral the the trailer while we're on our break. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. From the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, and I'm along with Sarah Whitmeyer, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU, and our two guests, Casey Valley, who's a, an IU student and a dive technician uh, for Southern Indiana Scuba here in Bloomington, and also Zach Rago, who's an educator and he was in a document. He was a documentary subject of chasing coral, and he's a reef expert. He's in Colorado, and he's joining us by phone. So um, we uh, again, if you want to give us a call, give us a call at eight one two eight five five zero eight one one or toll free at one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We were talking in the break a little bit about why there's reason for optimism, and Casey, I want to I want to get your thoughts on that, and just why why you think even if we lose what Zach said, ninety percent of reefs in the next fifty years is what they're preparing for. Right. Why that? Mm, the silver lining, I suppose. Yeah, like he said with that project, um, the focus there is that yes, ninety percent might be lost, but they can come back quickly and they can repopulate in different areas. And I think it's important to note that reefs are ultimately a vital reflection of what we humans are doing to the planet. Um, With all the CO2 emissions we're releasing and rising ocean temperatures, um, maybe life can still sustain itself on Earth, 
but maybe not human life. So with all the storms that result of this and with all um, the ocean getting warmer and the whole planet getting warmer, we might wipe ourselves out before we wipe out other life. And corals are hardy and they can survive and they can keep repopulating in different areas. Um, so I think ultimately it's a reflection of how the human species is going to do. Some of the, I mean, there are other things that can lead to the corals dying. Can you talk about some of those in addition to, you know, the ocean is getting warmer. There, there are other things that are, that are causing that besides CO2. Right. Um, for example, overfishing. Um, when we kill off all the fish on the reef or the grand predators of the reef, we're destructing ecosystems, which ultimately destructs the coral reef neighborhoods. Um, that are then subject to algae overgrowth, um, especially during bleaching. Then this algae just takes over the bleached coral, and then you just have this um, kind of dull, like it looks almost mossy, kind of just like the ocean floor. You don't know what that is, but it was once coral. Um, overfishing, um, anchors, boats have to drop their anchors, and these anchors drag along the coral. So you see these trenches appear that just show you where we've physically come and been destructive. Yeah. I, um, Zach, I think you're you're back with us, right? Yep. Okay. Um, I wanted to, One of the things that you said when we were just talking about was this losing 90% of the reefs in the next 50 years and then how, how we might, how actually that still might be okay because they'll be able to regenerate. So I guess I, I was asking... Casey, just about how, I guess, how that would be possible because the water temperature, if it's not getting any cooler, how do they, how do they do that? Yeah, so it would mostly be, um, you know, looking at some of the hydrodynamics of some of these particular locations. Um, I, I use the example of Indonesia. There's a particular area in Indonesia called Raja Ampat. It's become a lot pop, more popular um, in the past few years. Um, but for all intents and purposes, it's the single most diverse location on the planet, terrestrially or marine. Um, but one of the reasons why that area is so successful is that, again, it, it sits on this kind of bridge between the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And they have these intense currents that rip through these ecosystems. And that actually allows for some of that cooler water from the deeper portions of our oceans to be brought to the surface into those areas. So... Part of the what we're trying to look for um, into particular reefs that may have the best opportunities moving forward, um, that would be a big factor. Um, do they have access to um, to a natural current that that brings in some cooler water on a regular basis and can provide that um, that little bit of uh, I guess refreshment during these warming events? Um, and those places certainly exist. Um, it's really just right now about kind of doing our best to identify um, which of those locations we think are going to, you know, be best apt moving forward. There was this interesting part in the documentary where you're talking about the role in oceans and keeping the temperature for humans and, and other life on land down. Um, I don't remember those numbers. Perhaps you do, Zach, but just how important the ocean is just in the temperature of the planet. Yeah, totally. The, the statistics that we used in the film is basically, um, you know, if we weren't to um, have an ocean, so to speak, but, but more importantly, if the ocean weren't absorbing some of this carbon dioxide, the ocean has this amazing capacity where it finds equilibrium with our atmosphere. The ocean actually kind of lags behind, so to speak. So the reason why we think that, you know, we're going to lose 90% of corals and, and why we think we're only at the beginning of this is really due to that fact. Um, the ocean is catching up. So even if we stopped all carbon emissions right now, today, the ocean is still going to go through this process of finding equilibrium and warming over the next 50, 100, 150 years. Um, so, so this game is not over, even um, with the actions that we take today. Um, it's going to take a long time for, for the ocean to find that balance again. Um, but the number that, that you were referring to is basically if the ocean weren't playing this game uh, and weren't um, buffering out CO2 from our atmosphere, um, 
our our atmosphere's average temperature on this planet would be 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, it's currently about 58 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Zach, I want to talk about the about the documentary a little bit. How did you get involved with it, and what you know, what was the idea for it? Yeah, um, my personal story with the documentary, I was in the right place at the right time, quite frankly. Um, I was a kid, 21 years old, had just graduated from the University of Colorado um, and started an internship with a, a company that builds underwater scientific equipment, um, and particularly imagery equipment and live data acquisition. Um, and um, that imagery equipment solved the problem for Jeff Orlowski, who directed the film, um, in the sense that he is idea um, or the thought behind the and coral originally was well we want to take time lapses of coral really pretty coral reefs ultimately bleaching um, and then as you see in the film um, ultimately dying as well um, the idea was similar to his first film chasing ice in which he's done you know seven to ten year time lapses of glaciers melting um, so I, I was i was on the team that developed the time lapse cameras um, i was never supposed to be on camera um, but they also didn't know that I was a coral nerd when I started doing that. Um, and, and it kind of spiraled out of control as we moved on. And, and they enjoyed my, my passion and my background enough to include me in the film. But it was, um, yeah, a, a lot of luck. And, and what, what, do you, what do you hope people get from the film? Why, why do you encourage people to watch it? Yeah, I think for me... Um, I don't see the film as even necessarily an environmental doc. To me, it's an adventure doc of a group of people that um, you know set out and, and had a had a phenomenon that they wanted to capture like never before, and it's just really documenting our journey of trying to do just that. Um, and it, it takes some twists and turns, but I think that it allows people to see corals kind of like through my eyes or through the scientist's eyes and. And just you know, have an hour and a half to be able to really see them um, in the slow lane. I, I think so much of our planet lives life in the slow lane, and, and we, um, especially right now, have the shortest intention spans that we ever have had. And when you can take those things and, and compress them or uh, manipulate the time, so to speak, um, you can really change perspectives about something. And I think my favorite thing is having people come up to me after watching the film and say, I never could have thought that I would have cried over coral, and it's um, it's something that's completely out of sight and out of mind. So to be able to give them that opportunity to just see something that um, so few people have the opportunity to experience is a pretty special thing for me. It is kind. Of, it's kind of remarkable to think about the you know the amount of our world that is not within daily view. You know, and, yeah, and that's, what, that's what you and Casey see when you go under the water. Yeah. You need very special equipment to go down there and see it because otherwise you just see the surface and you just see this blue expanse. And once you can finally get under there and you have your mask and you can see, you see all these colors, you see all these communities and these structures and things that you didn't know the planet is capable of and needs and depends on to be planet earth ultimately mm -hmm. what did you think about the documentary i thought it was beautiful um it was a very amazing explanation of coral for anybody who knows about it or doesn't know about it like we've said it's kind of like this alien thing like it's an alien um environment that you're in because it's not air it's not your nitrogen and um oxygen that you're breathing you're like you are breathing this but it's compressed you have to take it with you it's not just there for you to breathe. Light is different. It's refracted. Everything is different. You see particles kind of swimming around you. You see fish, and you see these creatures that are capable at night of exerting, like, tentacles and things that you think are only there in your dreams. Um, as another world. Yeah. As it, it is. It's, it's almost like a sci-fi thing. It's like exactly. You kind of feel like you're on like Pandora and Avatar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As we lose some of these reefs, I mean, Zach, can you just talk about the ripple effects and what this means to other ecosystems, you know, throughout the world? Yeah. Uh, coral reefs are the nursery of the sea. Um, you know, depending on who you ask, uh, 25 to 30 percent of all life in our oceans relies on the coral reef ecosystems at some point in their life cycle. 
Um, so if, if you remove that portion, you, you immediately impact that 25 to 30 percent, which is a huge number considering that coral reefs make up less than 1 percent of the global surface area of our planet, yet so much life relies on it. Um, it can be a pretty scary thing. You really begin to see what's called a trophic cascade. You, you start to see that build its way up into um, the larger fish. You, you see it move into um, other ecosystems like mangroves or um, just the, the open pelagic ocean. Um, and, and I think in the film, we say, you know, the, you impact the big fish, and eventually you can look at ourselves as one of the big fish. Um, you get Southeast Asia in particular, and there are millions and millions of people, hundreds of millions of people that live in coastal regions, and these ecosystems are their even like their full eco- economy. Um, it's how they put food under um, on their table. It's how they put roofs over their heads. Um, and so, if you remove that from them, there's a very scary scenario in which we have a huge, huge refugee and climate problem if those uh, roofs are gone. Um, well, that's like the worst case scenario in my head. That's the one that keeps me up at night is thinking about the potential for, you know, a couple hundred million people to, um, you know, be removed from, from their economy and, and not necessarily have what it takes to create their livelihoods anymore. Um, that, that's a pretty scary scenario. I, I don't think that we're there right now, and I, I don't necessarily know um, if we'll get there anytime soon, but... Um, that's the big risk, is um, these places are extremely important, not only for the ecology and, uh, and the biology of these places that I love, but from the human side of things, um, there's a very large amount of people that, that need these ecosystems in their lives, and, and it's a, a huge support, and um, you know, they're worth trillions of dollars to the economy every year. So um, you know, scratching that off of the docket is... Um, is not a, a, a small deal. It's a very serious thing that we have to look at from that perspective, um, rather than maybe the, um, the kind of tree hugger oriented environmental side of things. Um, there, there's a very serious economic and uh, national security view that you can put on to coral reefs as to why they're so valuable to us as people as well. You're listening to Noon Edition, and we're talking about uh, a topic today that's, that's not that common for Indiana, but it's certainly important to all of us Hoosiers. We're talking about the degradation of coral around the globe. If you want to give us a call, give us a call at 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can even follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We're recommending to all of you to see the documentary Chasing Coral, which is on Netflix. Um, but for those who want to see coral, you know, firsthand, I want to ask uh, both of you to sort of uh, give us some recommendations, I guess, for the for different levels of divers, where, where you think people should go uh, if they're beginning divers and then perhaps some places that are a little unusual for more advanced. Casey? Um, you can start anywhere. You can start even in Indiana. You can look even in the quarries in your own backyard if you can get in there. Um, there are fish in most bodies of water around here, and you can see even them living in the rock and living in their own little ecosystems. And you can travel to the oceans. You can go to the Florida Keys where there are plenty of charter ships and things, and like everybody will take you out to sea. There's plenty of opportunities for divers. And you can follow guides. You can go and you can see these things firsthand and take pictures, rent cameras. Um, You can go to Cozumel. You can go to Belize, the Blue Hole, and see all these big coral formations, Great Barrier Reef. Um, Anywhere in the world, you can go there. Even if you're landlocked, there are places that will help you get there. Mm -hmm. Zach? Yeah, I mean, uh, Casey threw out some awesome ones that, that I'll probably repeat. Um, I think as beginners, um, especially like in America, um, like you said, there, there are places in your own neck of the woods. I mean, I, I grew up in Colorado. I've dove in some, some very cold and snowy holes in my life that, uh, <laughs> that are equally as fun sometimes, um, despite freezing. Um, but I think uh, I think the Florida Keys are an awesome place. There's so much support there, and some awesome organizations that 
um, are really going to be great for, for beginners and, and also some cool opportunities to even get involved with some citizen science down there with places like the Moat Marine Lab or um, the Coral Restoration Foundation. Um, but in the Caribbean, I think that my, uh, my three recommendations to go to would be um, in some of the places in the Bahamas are absolutely incredible, especially if you're into diving with sharks. Um, I second the Belize for sure. One of the best dives I've ever done in the Caribbean is Glover's Atoll in Belize. Just an amazingly beautiful coral reef. Um, and then Bonaire. Um, Bonaire to me is the best diving left in the Caribbean, and it is just a, an amazing place and, and really a, a diver's treat to be down there on that island. Um, and then, of course, the Great Barrier Reef. Um, that, that's always going to be my number one. I, I love that place dearly, and there are still some really amazing places, particularly in the South. Heron Island. Um, is probably my number one recommendation. It's just a phenomenal place. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just want to let everyone know that reefs are an excellent place to begin because they're shallow. They're safe. As long as you're doing diving safely, the reefs are an excellent place to start diving. Mm-hmm. And the uh, colors are more vibrant because they because get more sunlight. Yeah. Too, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I want to ask... Uh, Zach, because you you know you mentioned if you don't mind diving with sharks, um, you know that there are a lot of people that may think they want to start diving. That you said that, and then they're like, nope. Not, not yeah. doing. Talk, talk about that whole issue of you know sharks and whether they're really you know scary for divers or not scary for divers. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Well, I'll, I'll preface it with Jaws did us a very big disservice. Um, <laughs> People are scared of sharks, and I get it. But until you're in the water with one, um, as soon as you you get to hang out with a shark, um, you realize that, first of all, they are significantly more scared of us than we are of them. Um, The odds of a shark just hanging out near you without, you know, being chummed or something like that is pretty low. When they see people, they tend to bail out pretty quickly. Um, I get this question a lot with kids, and I usually answer it this way, and I say, you know, if you're scared of sharks, try getting in the water with a dolphin. Um, dolphins are extremely intelligent. Um, they, they have no problem invading your space, and it can be quite intimidating to be in the water with them. Um, sharks really are just majestic. They, they don't invade your space. They, they really don't care for you. Um, and, and quite frankly, we're not on their menu. Um, yeah. it, it, they're, they're just beautiful. I mean, you, you have the opportunity to you know look in a shark in the eyes underwater and you just get this sense that they, um, I don't even know if you can put a word on it. It's almost euphoric to, to look at them and, and, you know, stare them down into one of their eyes. And they're, they're beautiful creatures, and they really don't mean anybody any harm. Um, you know, we, we've, um, we've really, really, uh, you know, done ourselves a, a pretty big disservice in what we've done to shark populations because, um, you know, I'm a coral guy. That's what I talk about. But the... Um, the amount of sharks that we kill on a yearly basis is um, it's a number that um, is really astonishing. We we have um, we have not been good stewards for the the megafauna in our oceans. We've really decimated their populations, but they are um, they're so much fun to dive with. It's it just uh, it's a special thing when you when you get in the water with some sharks. And the other thing is, if you're on a coral reef and you don't see sharks, um, that that's a bad thing. Um, that means you're piecing uh, missing a piece of the puzzle. Um, and that we need more sharks. If you're if you're swimming with sharks, you're in a really healthy place, um, and you should be really grateful. Um, a question our producer just gave me that's not really related to anything we've been talking about here. So shifting gears, um, says I'm curious about hurricanes. Given the damage done over the last hurricane season, where reef were reefs damaged, and if we're going to lose a significant number of reefs, what does that do to our shorelines and hurricanes? Will we be less protected? Zach, you have yeah, thoughts? Um, I mean, hurricanes certainly, um, you know, play a role. We, we see it in Australia as well with cyclones, um, and they can most definitely damage coral reefs um, without a question, especially a big one like we had. Um, Maria was big and nasty. Irma was big and nasty, and, and they certainly probably had their impacts. Um, fortunately, with the, the way that the structure and kind of functionality that the Keys and um, places like the British Virgin Islands have, they don't necessarily have that huge branching structural component anymore. Um, and it's a lot of soft corals and a lot of big mound corals. 
so there's a little bit less damage that they can take. Um, I haven't been out to any of those reefs since um, last hurricane season, um, but from what I hear from some of like my colleagues and whatnot is that the, the damage isn't necessarily as bad as, as some people might expect. Um, that being said, um, it, it all kind of comes down to chance as well, I think. I think um, particular reefs probably have a, a higher probability of being you know, dramatically damaged during a hurricane. Um, but I think that we were fairly okay um, with last season. Um, but, but it's obviously something to, to consider. Um, these storms are going to continue happening. They're going to continue to be worse and stronger. Um, and, and that means that the coral reefs just have another, uh, another pressure on their shoulders, for sure. And reefs do provide a degree of protection, too. So is that a real concern? You know, when, you, when you're talking about a place like Belize that's protected by this huge reef, if the reef is damaged, how might that impact? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, they're, they're the best sea barriers that we can make. Um, they're constantly building it all the time. Um, it, it, it's, um, it's like having a construction crew building your seawall 24 hours a day, years on end. Um, so if you remove that, you, you certainly have a, a little bit more access to big storms to the shoreline. Um, and those coastal communities definitely have... Um, have a, a significant chance to, to see more, um, you know, coastal flooding um, and things like that. So they, they certainly play a big role. They're, they're, they're the protectors of our shorelines where we have them. And um, in removing them, the, the things that we've built and um, the resorts and the tourism that we've designed around these locations and in coastal communities um, all become significantly more under threat because that, that natural protection has been, been torn away. Zach, in this Q&A that I, uh, I looked at this morning, one of the things that you talked about at the very end of it, um, about takeaways from the film, is how the, the film is about more than coral reefs. It's about a lot of, you know, it's about how we how we live and how we're, we sort of uh, can better ourselves. But you also talked about, and you just mentioned some of it, you talked about the impact on the economy, the impact on jobs, and then you also mentioned national security. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so coming from an ecologist point of view, um, my view of the world is very oriented around nature. But I, I've come to realize, and in chasing coral, I've really worked on, on thinking about some of these issues through this human perspective, because that's where that's where people are, um, and you have to meet halfway, and you have to find the common ground. I mean, I think that when it comes down to the economics and it comes down to the national security. Um, those are the areas in which, no matter what side of the stick you land on, um, we can all find agreement. Um, we can find common ground. Um, and, and the economic value of coral is massive. We're talking about trillions of dollars. Um, and that immediately has impact on, on us in America, um, and it has impact on every other economy across the planet. Um, I think the national security threat comes in, um, like what we were talking about. If there is a scenario in which we have massive climate refugees coming out of some of these areas that are purely reliant on coral reefs, how do we cope with that as a global society? Uh, and, and what does that do to both the economy and, and both the way that countries are functioning? Um, you know, I don't necessarily think that we've done a great job in Europe with... Um, with a, a, a fairly small amount of refugees in comparison when we're talking about what's been going on in Syria. Um, are we prepared to deal with, um, you know, tenfold more climate refugees in, in the near future? Um, and what does that mean for things like uh, for, um, <clears throat> for our economy and, and for the, the nation of national security, especially in a time where... Um, Things like immigration are huge topics um, in this country, and uh, once you start having refugees start you know, inserting themselves into that situation, um, you know, I don't know how prepared we are to, to cope with something like that. Um, and, and those are the ways I think we have to you know, continue talking about it. Those are the reasons why we, we can take a stand and find common ground to take a stand for environmental issues, not because it's the, the right thing to do or the the kind of hippie tree hugging thing to do, but rather because um, it, it impacts all of us for um, very real reasons that, um, that can actually impact our daily lives. 
All right. We have a, just a couple minutes to go. I want to ask Casey first, and then we'll, we'll give you the, the last word, Zach. But what can we do? I mean, we're, what, what can we as Hoosiers do, and, and what can people who might be uh, finding us on the web do to help protect the reefs? No matter where you go, pick up trash. In the documentary, there's like this specific scene I remember. Zach just goes up and he jumps in the water and he picks up a cup and he's like, really, like this is the problem. And it's pretty much saying, no, we're safe if we keep doing this. No matter where you are, like in the middle of the US or on the coast, if you just pick up trash, if you keep like the like rhetoric going, like you have to care about everything that you're doing, be minimal waste, be minimal impact then ultimately all the little changes that every person makes might add up and might save our species really from being flushed out by the planet because it's going to go on without us. And as far as diving goes, if you want to see it for yourself, you can. Even in Indiana, there's a dive shop right up the road and you can go and you can sign up to go to places like Belize, the Bahamas, um, Thailand. You can dive in these places that are still very beautiful. And you can see what it's like to have a pristine planet. 30 seconds, Zach. Yeah, I got a second what Casey said. Um, she's talking a lot about why it's about us, not about nature. Um, there's a lovely quote that says, nature knows no extinction, only perpetual transformation. And I believe that to be true. Um, but I want to point out that you have somebody in Colorado and a, somebody from Indiana on your call right now. We are not from the ocean. Um, and, and really what it comes down to is taking action at the community level. Um, when you think globally, you can be filled with doom really quickly. Um, each community needs to look into themselves and find out what can you do in your own neck of the woods? What is our best plan of action to make ourselves better? Um, and when you have all the communities doing that and you take an additive effect, we've really done something. All um, right. So get, get involved locally. That, that's what it's all about. Thank you very much. That's Zach Rago, who check out the documentary uh, Chasing Coral. And also Casey Valley has been with us. She's a dive technician from Southern Indiana Scuba. For Sarah Whitmire, producer Angelo Batista, and engineer Mike Peshkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.